Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. So we'll be in Genesis 42 tonight. Um, before I get rolling, just a, it always amazes me because every week I sit down and I think, okay, let's just get the stuff copied over into my notes, you know, the, the chapter and whatnot. And I think maybe this week I'll knock off two, three chapters and we'll like cover ground. And then I get into the study and there's so much there that you just realize how God's word is just an absolute miracle. And that the the reflections of Jesus that you see in these passages and the things that are here, and even trying to like imagine or play the movie of this scene in your head a little bit. Um, and this chapter, initially I read through it, and then as I started getting into it, I just realized that there's just a lot here. So we're kind of, I think we're only going to get to one chapter tonight. Um, but as a reminder, we left Joseph after 13 years in prison. He'd been put second in command of the kingdom of Egypt. And if you treat the Pharaoh as God, which the Egyptian religion would, that means Joseph the top human being or the top man on earth um, in the Egyptian kingdom. Um, so he would have been he would have been you know top, and then God is over him. Um, and at the end of chapter 41, all the nations of the world were coming to Joseph as a way to get food. Um, and then you start, and and I'll remind you because I thought this is the coolest thing in the world. When you look around the world, you can find evidence of these these this era when Joseph was holding life for everyone on the planet. Um, and there was the the Tajah record, which was, um, I, Tajah, my daughter, Sue Shafar, sent my steward to Joseph, and he delayed in returning me. Remember this? And I sent my handmaid with a measure of silver to bring me back flour, and not being able to produce it, I sent her with a measure of gold. And not being able to produce it, I sent her with a measure of pearls. And not being able to procure it, I commanded them to the greed of the ground. And finding no profit in them, I am shut up here. And she goes on to say, I'm going to die here because Joseph doesn't want to give me food. Um, and this is coming out of Yemen, right? So you have these records from around the world where people were sending people to Joseph to get grain. And Joseph couldn't give it to everyone. But he did give it to this one group of Canaanites or, or Hebrew people that came down and asked for it because they were his family. Um, so we, last time we looked at that and we saw a lot of things where Joseph's tomb, the city where Joseph would have worked and all these things have some historical confirmation and that this event that we're reading about, is a historical event. And this week I was kind of thinking the opposite direction. Yes, there's history here and we're here to study history, but we're also here to study God and God's nature and what God has to say through the word of God. And I think that part sometimes I lose track of when I prepare these because I get so excited about the validation through history and archaeology and all these other texts. But I forget that what's going on here is that we get to see the nature of God and how he plans things through human history. And this chapter is just the culmination of really everything so far is going to come to this point where the nation of Israel is going to get saved. So we see the nature of God. It's been 20 years um, since 
the patriarchs of Israel have started to split, right? Joseph got sent away. Um, Judah at the has left to go do his own thing in his own area of the world. So we see Israel starting to splinter and Judah living away from the group, Joseph being sent into slavery, living away from the group. So this is one of those moments in history where Israel is going to split and go in many directions or God's going to bring them back together and unite them. So it's a but God. But God was going to intervene here so that something happens to bring these 12 tribes back together because they're already splintering apart. And he's going to do it through human events. He's going to do it through people. He's going to do it with a gentle touch. Um, we don't see a, an, a, a huge Exodus-like miracle happening here. But if you really think of what would it take to get all these people back together, it's going to take a miracle. And that's exactly what kind of happens through these dreams. So I was just praying about it, and I, that's kind of the direction tonight, is I really want to get back to saying, how is this a reflection of God, and how God works in our lives, and how God does things in our lives. And it starts with that idea that it's been 13 years, that God's been working and weaving this plan for a long time. And for us, that 13 years would be, would feel like forever, right? Anything we have to do for 13 years would feel like a, an eternity to us. But to God, that's just how he works. So, uh, verse 1. When Jacob saw that there was green in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why are you looking at one another? <laughs> so right off the bat, we start off with this idea of there's green in Egypt. And you and I asked, well, how does Jacob know there's green in Egypt? He must have heard it from someone or he's heard tales of it. Um, so immediately Jacob's in this position where there has to be faith. And this is the kind of faith that would be a mundane faith because it doesn't take faith in miraculous to think Egypt has green. Right? The Nile River can continue feeding things. But somehow he's heard it, and his faith, of course, leads to action in that he starts to send his sons in, in, in an area. Faith, really, all faith is, is believing something's true and acting on that. And that's what Jacob has here is a very small amount of faith where he believes it's true that there's grain in Egypt, so he acts on it. Um, and there's a reflection piece here, and I want you to listen to this throughout. There are various kinds of hunger that people have. There's physical hunger, which gets to be really obvious when you don't eat. In fact, you can't ignore physical hunger. It, it so inter, interjects itself in our life. We can try to force ourselves to ignore it, but there's really only one thing to do when you're hungry for food is you need to go get food. Um, spiritual hunger works almost in the opposite direction. The more you feed your spirit, the more hungry you are to continue feeding it but it works very opposite from physical hunger. You can go 20 years, 13 years, and never know that you're spiritual hungry. You can become dead to it. Um, but the same thing's true. There's only one thing to do to feed your spiritual hunger. You have to go and see about God. So God uses famine here, I think, to paint a picture of the nature of the Holy Spirit. Um, that the Holy Spirit has been sent to the world to draw men or to, to show us our spiritual hunger so that we go to God. And when you find that, when the Holy Spirit gives you that spiritual hunger, you can search in many different places and be tortured by it. Just like if you were hungry for food, you can't let that hunger go because it's so present um, that you have to go do it. But God asks you to do something, which is to have faith and act on the fact that you have a hunger and you need to go take care of it. So we start out 42 with a desperate need for grain. And there's a desperate need for this family to deal with the guilt that it has. And the good news is there's a way to deal with it. So Jacob turns to his sons and essentially translated, there's not much to translate there. He's basically saying, stop twiddling your thumbs. You know, stop looking at me with your mouths open and breathing. Uh, don't just stand there, do something. So there's lots of ways to do that. 
And I think that's true for us too. When you realize you have a hunger, you don't just stand there. You go do something about your hunger and you take care of it. Verse 2, and he said, Indeed, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So the entire Old Testament has these ideas of living versus dying, um, and God shows himself in these. Um, Likewise, Jesus says you can live and not die if you come to him. He's already prepared the bread of life. He uses these metaphors and these illustrations throughout. So Joseph has sold out, mistreated, cast away, and now he's in a position to rule over the world, and he's actually in a position to save the world. A lot like Jesus was, mistreated, sold out, and cast away. And then he was redeemed, and he was put in a position where he could save the world. All you got to do is go to Jesus. And at this point, all you got to do is go to Joseph. So you make the trip. Where else would you go besides talking to Joseph? You would probably go nowhere else. And it reminded me when Simon Peter said, Lord, to who shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the only place we can go to meet our hunger. And that's what's going on here. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain. Notice there's ten brothers, so Judah must have come back to join them again to go on this mission. So we're already starting to unify the tribes again. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. So he holds back Benjamin. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So... One slice of Israel then stays back with dad and has not wandered away. It makes total sense um, that Benjamin would not go with this crew of brothers because this crew of brothers has already lost one of their brothers under suspicious circumstances. Remember, Jacob doesn't know that he was sold into slavery. He just thinks he was killed because his big brothers didn't watch after him. So there's a remnant that gets held back. And in the same way, Israel has a remnant that will be held back. And at every stage of Israel's existence, there's a remnant that stays holy and true to God. And even in the end, Zephaniah 3.13 says, The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness, speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. It's likely that Jacob just doesn't trust his son Benjamin, who came from Rachel, who's the full brother of Joseph because he wants to hold on to at least one of these two brothers that were raised by Rachel. And the long trip would worry any parent. Why would you send your youngest on this big long trip down to Egypt? So that could just be a reason too. So he's keeping his son in reserve probably for the inheritance and the blessing. Now Joseph was governor over the land and he was it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came down and bowed before him with their faces to the earth. So Joseph has gone through those seven years of plenty, and now we're hitting probably the second or third year of famine because you don't go traveling to different countries in the first year of famine. So Joseph has had eight or nine years as commander of Egypt, basically with carte blanche on what he wants to do there. Um, And that means he's pretty busy. He doesn't probably have a large staff or cell phones or anything like that. So he's got to handle things. And the way a leader in the ancient world would handle things is they would get up in the morning and they'd go sit in the gate of the city and then they would do dealings. So they, it, it looks like archaeologically they built a city to distribute the grain. And they had grain storehouses in all of the different cities, but you had to go to Joseph to get any of it. So he's got this very uh, tight control over Egypt. And we see as they bow down before him with their faces of, to the earth that we have a fulfillment of Genesis 37.7. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, 
and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood around bowed and made obeisance to my sheaf. The brothers are here to buy grain. They have to bow down to Joseph to do that. The dream is fulfilled. So Joseph saw his brothers in verse 7, and he recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. And then he said, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So it's interesting that he recognizes him, and the Bible points that out. Um, It's been 20 years, so that's a lot of time. Joseph remembers them clearly. Um, It's important who knew who, because Joseph here shows amazing control. You'd think if he saw his brothers, he would just react. But he has total control of his emotions, and he continues to hold the role of the Egyptians. And we'll read later that he actually continues to speak in Egyptian. So he acts as a stranger in verse 7. Um, so he acted like an Egyptian and, and lorded over them. The brothers, you would think, would recognize Joseph, but he was probably a little younger, so his face didn't change before they sold him. And they think he's dead, so they're not looking for him in Egyptian clothing, in an Egyptian rulership thing. So you could see where they might miss it. Also, remember when they pulled him out of jail, they shaved his beard. So he doesn't look like a Canaanite anymore. He's shaved like an Egyptian is. So... Here he sits, the brothers are now bowing before him, so that's the first dream fulfilled. Verse 8, so Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him, so they repeat it twice, so it's an important detail. Then Joseph remembers the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and he said, you are spies, and you've come to see the nakedness of the land. One way to read this is that Joseph is being a little vindictive. He's messing with his brothers. I think as we read on, we're going to see that he's testing his brothers because he sees them. And remember last time he saw them, his brothers were an evil lot. They had killed a whole city. They were having uh, extramarital affairs. They were a nasty group of selfish guys. So when he comes and they're bowing before him, I think he kind of wants to see what kind of people they are. So Joseph allows a little time, keeps his cards close, um, and he wants to see what's going on. Probably... It took Joseph just a moment to think through all this. But God is at work. When he sees his brothers bowing, that's for Joseph, he's feeling God's presence because he's realizing that dream he had that he got from God, it's actually just came true. And it's taken decades for that to happen. The word nakedness or erva is in reference to exposed humans too. The idea is that when spies come into a land, they want to see the land without any soldiers blocking their view so they can see things underneath the covers. Um, and if they're coming from Canaan, that's a group of people that did go to war and battle, and we've already seen that in Genesis. So Egypt would have reason to worry if they're the only ones with food. They should be worrying about other armies coming into their country. And he said to them, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. So he repeats himself here, and this is, of course, when I went off and started, like, this to me was really interesting. Why did Joseph repeat himself? So, and then it occurred to me, Joseph ran a prison for a long time. He's used to dealing with criminals and liars. And he knows how to interrogate a criminal or a liar to get truth out of them. And the accusation here puts them on the defensive. It's a key strategy for interrogation people even today to get people to tell the truth is you accuse them of something that they didn't do and then they start just pouring out information to defend themselves so even if you know they're guilty of one thing 
and these brothers are they're guilty of essentially sending their brother off into slavery so they are guilty they're living with this guilt of what they did to his their brother um, mm-hmm. but Joseph puts him in a position where he's going to get impromptu answers for him and notice how the brothers give more and more information each time they defend themselves so they just keep giving away things um, and in verse 9 verse 12 verse 14 and verse 16 Joseph just repeats his accusation again and again and again you see that so if you look up Sergeant Steve Shrimp of the Greeley, Colorado Police is one of the nation's leading experts on how to do interrogations. There are five strategies you use when you want to interrogate a bad guy. And I thought this was interesting because Joseph uses all five and he does it perfectly. The first thing you do if you want to interrogate a bad guy is you listen to their side of the story. So when Joseph asks this question, they immediately start talking about how they're brothers, they're from Canaan, they start describing themselves, and then you repeat that accusation over and over and over again. So you let people interrogate themselves. People that are lying tend to talk more than people that aren't, right? So in Joseph's repetition, he's using Doug Wiley, or it was written by Doug Wiley, but he got it from Steve Shrimp. So Steve Shrimp's, Sergeant Shrimp's, second tool is let them interrogate themselves. So just repeat your question over and over and over and over again, and they'll start to go after themselves. Pay close attention to the nonverbals. I think that's exactly what Joseph is doing here. By keeping his identity secret, he can watch the actions and behaviors of his brothers to see if they've changed or not. Number four, offer them a face-saving scenario. And as we read on, you're going to see... that Joseph actually gives them, instead of just killing them as spies, which is what you do with spies, he doesn't kill them. He says, well, if you are telling the truth, then you should be able to find your other brother because Joseph might be thinking they killed Benjamin too, right? Rachel's other son. So he's trying to dig up what's going on with his brother and eventually he's going to ask to bring the brother back. So he gives them a face-saving scenario. Well, what if you did this? Then maybe you could get yourself out of this. Rule number five of interrogating bad guys and getting them to confess study the subject for as long as you can put them in the room and let them sit there for as long as you possibly can and just watch them and get to understand what baseline mannerisms are so when they lie you recognize what their regular mannerisms are and that's modern day criminology but Joseph's going to throw them in a jail cell for three days the jail most likely that he ran for 13 years where he knew people so of course he can just sit in and listen in on them by not knowing that the language is different, he can listen to them talk, talk in Hebrew, and he's in Egyptian. So he's doing everything right by today's standards of interrogating criminals. And I thought that was super cool. All right, verse, thir- verse 13. And he said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. So now he gets information about Benjamin. They name 12 brothers. They also point out that one is no more, which is Joseph that they're talking about, but they're not owning up to the fact that they had a hand in that. They're just acknowledging that they had a brother. Um, So Joseph's going to trust but verify. He wants to learn a little more about the family. He keeps his uh, his cards close, and he shrewdly navigates the situation. Um, His brothers, like I said before, probably think Joseph is dead by now because slaves don't live that long. In general, they don't get fed well. They do hard labor. Um, it is likely in their head that Joseph's gone. So they tune into the the picture of Joseph, and let's tune into the gospel picture of Joseph. 
Uh, Joseph is the first to speak God's word to Israel, the nation. His brothers represent the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Um, and they sell out the first prophet they have. So when Joseph gives that dream, God's word to his brothers, that's the first, essentially the first prophet that goes to the people of Israel and says, I have a prophecy for you. And there will be lots of prophets through the Old Testament, but Joseph's essentially the first one to go to the people of Israel and say, God says this. And they threw him out the door. In the same sense, when Jesus came to us as a prophet, he gets thrown out the door too. Um, and he gets sold out. And it and when Stephen's talking in the book of Acts, when Stephen starts to talk about how this happens as a pattern with Israel, this is the first moment, but he brings up Joseph. And it says, and the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. And now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. Our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people in total. So Jacob went down to Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and he was carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money for the sons of Hamra, the father of Shechem. This story was at the front of the minds of the first century Jewish people. And when Stephen's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, he tells this story as one, as this list of stories where the people of Israel basically cast out their prophets. And then he goes on to say, and you just cast out Jesus. You just cast out the Messiah, just like you cast out all these other people. So at this point, Joseph, however, is coming back. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, as I spoke to you saying, you are spies. Um, it is as I spoke to you saying, you are spies. So Joseph just repeats himself again. Um, and he sits in judgment over the people of Israel in a lot in a lot of the same ways as Jesus will sit in judgment over the people of Israel at some point too. So he tests them again in verse 14. In verse 15, in this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, you are surely spies. So Joseph sits as judge. He's divining between the truth and the lies over the people of Israel. And each of these tests will challenge. In fact, all tests that we have in our life challenge us in a different way. Um, and God will test and try his people. And he does this regularly. So this is the face saving option for the brothers. Well, if you're telling the truth, then you should be able to bring Benjamin back here and I should be able to meet your 11th brother. So he put them all together in prison for three days, <laughs> which I think is a delight. Which prison does he put them in? Really, there's only one prison that we've heard about or that we're aware of, and that is the one in Potiphar's house. Joseph would have been connected there. He'd know lots of people in the prison, and he'd probably get reports on every word they say to each other while they're in the prison cell. So he gives them a clue here in the next verse that they should have picked up on, but they're totally blind to. In the same way that we get lots of clues about the Messiah, but there's people that are blind to it. Then Joseph said to them, the third day, do this and live for I fear God. So when he says, for I fear God, Joseph again puts God in front, even with his brothers. 
And we've seen him do this with everyone he meets. He declares that he loves God, that he fears God, that he serves God. Joseph put God's in front. What's interesting here, though, is he doesn't use the word Jehovah. If you look on this one in the Strong's Concordance, he uses Elohim, which could be an Egyptian god, could be any god. In fact, a master of a household can be called Elohim. It's a, it's a general small g god word. He doesn't use the Jehovah capital G word. So he still keeps himself a little concealed, but the fact that he says he fears God, um, and the way he says it here, it's a singular God, and the Egyptian gods were a pantheon of gods. So he doesn't say, I fear the gods. He says, I fear God. The brothers should have heard that, and that should have sounded really odd to them, but they're totally blind to the clues that God gives them about their own redemption. And I feel like I'm having to point this out each time. That's exactly how our faith works. The whole Old Testament is filled with these images, these imprints of what Jesus Christ and our faith should look like. And it's it, it's hard to read these things and not see those kinds of connections. Like, oh my goodness, there it is again and again and again. We get to know the nature of God by the stories that God's written, and we see the word of God. And the word of God was at the beginning, and it is, and it forever shall be. And this is God's way of showing us who he is. Sometimes God tests us. Sometimes God makes us wait for our job, right? And sometimes God makes us deal with that other person at work that's driving us crazy. Um, sometimes God puts us in those situations because he wants to see our character. He wants to see our character either get shaped and molded or he wants to test to see how strong our character is. So we see those kinds of things. But God still has a plan. Don't forget that he made a promise to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abe, to Isaac, to Jacob. And he's made a promise to Jacob's family, these 12 sons, and he's going to complete his promise. But now Joseph has an Egyptian wife, so likely he's not in the line of the Messiah. So Joseph, I think, is believing the promises made to his dad, and he's not going to just wantonly kill the people of God. Even though his brothers were scumbags, Joseph knows there's a promise that's going to happen through these 11 brothers. So he's probably already decided to save them. Um, and he's held to God through all of this. He's going to also hold to God's promises. So I wonder if Joseph is sitting there listening to him in jail, thinking to himself, which of the brothers is the line of the Savior going to come from? Are one of my brothers the Savior of the world? And if so, I want to see which of them stand up and which of them take a lead. Um, Verse 19, if you're an honest man, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry the grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So now he lets all of them go home. After three days, he kind of gives them another scenario and he lets them all go and they um, get a choice here. They can take their... When they leave, they can go home and take the grain and feed people, and that's great. But they're going to have to leave a brother behind just like they left Joseph behind. This is actually kind of a brilliant way to test his brothers, right? So first of all, the brothers get to pick who they're going to sacrifice, and then they have to go through the trouble of returning to Egypt to come save their brother. And I think Joseph is testing to see if his brothers have changed at all or if they're just going to let that brother die. I don't think Joseph would let whoever gets left behind. He's not going to let him go, but he, he's testing these brothers. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, the distress has come upon us. Oh, that's so harsh. 
they're sitting there in this prison 20 years after the fact thinking that the reason they're in that prison cell is because of what they did to Joseph, which shows us that they have a conscience. Are they getting this because of Joseph? No, they're not. They're getting this because God's doing a work and reuniting Israel, right? But there's a general consensus here. It says we are truly guilty. They're actually agreeing. So this is our first major confession of the Bible. They're actually confessing their sins here in a prison cell and they're agreeing with one another, we're guilty. And think of what they're apprenticing, of all the bad things they've done, it's the fact that they saw the anguish of his soul when he, Joseph, pleaded with us and we would not hear. That's the thing that sticks in their conscience and guilt works like that. We see lots of examples in the modern era when people live with guilt, it affects their physiology, it affects their psychology, it affects everything about them when people do things they know that are wrong, they have to live with that guilt or they go in and confess that guilt. So there's an image here of seeing Joseph in this well 20 years ago, crying, horrified, pleading with his brothers, what are you doing? And Joseph probably only ever wanted to serve his brothers, but his brothers totally betrayed him. That's the thing, that image of their little brother crying as he's hauled away by the Ishmaelites probably broke their hearts. It would devastate anyone. A lot of times when people come to Christ, they don't think of all the sins they've committed. They think of that one sin they've committed, right? Because we're all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. And we can spend our whole life doing sins. But a lot of times when we come to the Lord, we come to the Lord because of a sin. There's something that's stuck with us and we can't get rid of it. It's like a hunger. And the only way to get rid of that hunger, that guilt, is to turn to the one who can release you from it. And Reuben answered them, verse 22. Remember, Reuben's the oldest. Reuben answered them saying, did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. No, that's a lie. God doesn't require blood and Joseph never died. So his blood's not requiring anything. Um, the problem with guilt is it blinds you to the realities of the world around you. You start to make assumptions, but, but you're not seeing things clearly anymore. Reuben, uh, Reuben still says the word us here, um, even though he's saying, I told you so, which I think is kind of funny. The older brother is saying, I told you so, but he still uses the blood being required of us, which is, again, Reuben finally stepping up as the eldest brother, taking responsibility. And again, the only reason these are here is likely because Joseph wrote this story down. Joseph would have been the primary recorder of this. So Joseph's listening in or hearing all of this in the prison. The other thing is, why would they think, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? There's no Mosaic law at this point. There's no Leviticus. There's no rule that says you can't sell your brother into slavery. So what about this makes it illegal? And you have to go back to the Noah in chapter 7, I think. I didn't write the chapter down. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Under the Noahic law, you can't kill people, right? It's not as complex as the Mosaic law, but they have that. They didn't actually shed his blood. Remember, that was Reuben's thing. Maybe we should sell them instead of killing him. So why now do they think that his blood is required of them when they didn't actually kill Joseph? And the reality is, just like Jesus said, even when you think of something, you're still guilty of it, right? You can think of murder, or call someone a bad name, but you're guilty of murder because you thought you were better than them in the first place. 
And that's what's going on here. They, they recognize their guilt, not because they actually hurt Joseph physically, um, but because they're essentially responsible for his death and demise is what they're thinking. Verse 23, but they did not know that Joseph understood them for he spoke to them through an interpreter and he turned himself away from them and he wept. And then he returned to them again and he talked with them and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph here becomes overwhelmed. There had to be some hurt and some pain that he's been living with for a long time when his brothers betrayed him. And to hear them talking like this and to recognize they, they feel guilty, you'd think again at this point, Joseph would run in and say, you didn't actually kill me. It's me. I'm here. But he doesn't run in and he doesn't let him off. He continues to keep his guise as an Egyptian because um, I think he wants to see that that repentance comes with action. And I think God does that sometimes too. We can repent of our sins um, and God wants to see that something results from that. Right, that there's some action taken when we repent. Not that the actions save us. I think the repentance clearly in the Bible saves us. But there is something like James says, with faith without works is dead. If there's real faith, if you really believe something's true, you act on it. You do something different because of it. Um, we don't know how they picked Simeon. He's the second son, so they didn't necessarily. Reuben would have stayed behind if it was if it was something else, but. It appears that the brothers got to choose who they left behind. Um, maybe it's because Simeon and Levi were the two violent guys that went into the city, or they were the worst, so Simeon was there. Maybe it's because the eldest needed to go back and oversee things, so they took the second oldest. We don't know, and it doesn't say. But those are a couple theories. Verse 25, Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain and restore every man's money to his sack and give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So Joseph just blesses them and they're all worried and upset and in a jail cell and he puts the grain in their sacks and he puts the money back in the sacks. He doesn't take anything from them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money's been restored and there it is in my sack. When you get a blessing, if you went to the store and they check you out and they didn't act, and you get your credit card statement at the end of the month and they didn't actually pull the money out, most people would be like, hey, cool, I didn't have to actually pay for that thing that I bought. That's exactly what this situation is. You'd think, hey, that's kind of cool, I didn't have to pay for that thing. Honest people might go back to the store and say, hey, you never actually billed me for this. But in today's world with the digital economy, you'd be scared then that they might bill you twice. So in all likelihood, you would just say, hey, cool, I kept my money. They made an accident. You know, it's probably some slave filling up the sacks anyways. Maybe they just forgot to take the coin or they didn't want to be guilty of stealing. So when one sack is like this, they think, oh, that'd be great. But look at what happens. They're not happy about this at all. They've been blessed with money and grain. But if you finish verse 28, then their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is it that God has done to us? So these are brave men willing to kill cities of people but their heart fails them. Uh, the wording there for hearts failing, heart is pretty much heart, but to fail them, it actually, that word more means more departing from or leaves you. So their heart departed from their body. There's complete dread at this point because they realize it could be that they're being set up as thieves and thieves get killed. Even though they're getting their money back, they're probably scared that Joseph's trying to set them up. So here they are, 
almost ready to leave another brother behind. In fact, we're going to see later on that it takes another famine or a continued famine for them to go back and get their brother. So they're suspicious. They don't recognize that this is a blessing, that Joseph's done something nice for them. And so they, this event, their guilt, everything they've got on their shoulders, they're completely blind to what God is doing in their life. And they can't see what's happening around them, even with the clues that are there. Verse 29, Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. The Egyptian word for man um, and the Egyptian word for vizier or leader are really similar words, and uh, they could be either one in this situation. The man who is lord, basically, then, if it was vizier as the word, would be the leader or the head of the Egypt said to us. But we said to him, we are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, one is no more, and the youngest is with our father in this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your younger bro- youngest brother to me, so that I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are an honest man. And I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. So, remember before that Jacob held Benjamin back, and the reasoning he gave is because he didn't want a calamity to befall Benjamin. I don't think Jacob trusts these boys at all. And he hasn't for 20 years when he lost Jacob, Joseph. So no way on earth is he going to send Benjamin with them. Now they come back a second time missing one of their brothers, right? So from Jacob's perspective, he doesn't know that one was a lie and one's the truth. All he knows is that uh, 11 go out and 10 come back. And now 10 go out and 9 come back. This is just something where from Jacob's perspective, this looks ridiculous. Like he's going to keep losing sons because they keep picking each other off like a survivor episode. (laughs) So Simeon's family is probably um, also there and they get the news that Simeon's gone. So his wife, his kids, you know, there's a growing number of people around these 12 sons now. Imagine being those, that family realizing your dad's still stuck in a Lithuanian prison and they're not coming home anytime soon. Well, thanks for having dad's back. You know, that would be a tough situation. So verse 35, then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, were they happy? Were they joyful? No, they were afraid. Even when God's people do nice things for people, sometimes psychologically, they're so depressed, so hurt, so guilty, so angry that they can't see a kind deed for what it is. They think it's some sort of setup or some sort of plot or plan when Joseph was just trying to love on his brothers. I wonder if Joseph was even hoping that they would recognize him at some point. So they have so much fear in their heart, they can't accept or recognize the blessings of God. They consider God providing food actually as a punishment. They have called evil good, and they've called good evil. And their hearts are already taunting them, I think, at this point. Hiding sin, I think the lesson from this, hiding sin in your life can mess you up. And it can mess you up so bad that you can't even see the good things for good. And you can't even understand what that looks like. It twists your thinking. Luckily, 
God can still bless the people of Israel despite the fact that they think they're being cursed. And Jacob, their father, verse 36, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? You're kidding, right? Now you want to go out again and come back with one less person one more time? All these things are against me. So Jacob is seeing, and, and correctly, that he's lost two of his sons to this crew. They don't protect each other. They don't look out for each other's backs. They don't guard each other. They're not good brothers. And so he knows something is wrong. And in both case, cases, there's no person there. And all he sees is guilt. God himself, remember, has talked to Jacob. Remember a few chapters back? God actually spoke directly to Jacob and made him a promise about his sons and about what was going to happen. So the truth of the matter is both of his sons, all 12 sons are alive. And God has told Jacob that he's going to bless those sons. So when Jacob believes that two might be dead, he's reduced to self-pity, doubt, and even depression here. But he's just been blessed with food and money and all of his sons are alive. So the truth of what God's doing in his life and his psychological framework that he has are in total discordance. They don't agree with each other at all. And I know that's a lot to get out of one sentence, but I keep thinking about it. And I keep thinking what's happened to Jacob. This is a guy that clinged on to the heel of the man he wrestled with in his dream because he wanted God's blessing so bad. Well, now he's got God's blessing and he takes it for granted. In fact, he's just feeling horrible about it. God can give everything to us, but without faith, we don't even see what we've gotten. So Jacob, these are the words of Jacob. All these things are against me. Woe is me. It's all about me. You've bereaved me. And he's put all his focus on himself. We would call that depression. There's only four kinds of people in the world. There are those that are angry. And if you're angry, you've got your eyes on other people and you're mad at them. There are those that are stressed out and they've got their eyes of all the things of the world that fill up their life. There's those people that are depressed and they've always got their eyes on themselves. And then the fourth one is the people, there's people that are joyful and they tend to have their eyes on God. And you take those four basic people types and Jacob is shifted from being a joyful eyes on God person and he's fallen into a state of depression where his eyes are on himself and he's blind to what God's doing. Modern psychology tells us when we have problems in our life, we're supposed to work through them and talk about them. And the Bible generally says when you have problems in your life, you should turn to God and put your eyes on God. That the real solution to our problems is that when we look to God, our problems aren't actually problems anymore. And if Jacob looked to God, I have no doubt God would have reassured him, all of your sons are alive. You've got food to feed your family. You got your money back that I blessed you with in the first place, remember? Um, God's blessing is there and, and the problems are actually false. Matthew 6, 33, there's tons of verses that make this point throughout the Bible, but this is one that we all know. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things are added unto you. This is the failing of Jacob right now, is that he's not seeing it. Verse 37, the last one, then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons. If I don't bring him back to you, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. 
So we have a change of character here. This is a moment for Reuben. He couldn't stop his brothers from selling from for selling Joseph into slavery, but at this point, Reuben's going to step up and be the eldest son. He's going to lead. Um, he makes a stupid vow when he does it, like, if I don't come back, you can kill my children. Um, that's not something God's asked him to do, but at least Reuben's taking some ownership and doing what he knows how to do. Later on in the Bible, Reuben's going to be defined as unstable as water. And we see Reuben just shifts back and forth and does that a lot, and he's going to continue doing it. But now we leave Jacob with a choice, a test for Jacob. And this is the question before we go to chapter 43. Is Jacob going to trust the Lord and let Reuben go get Simeon back, or is he not? Um, will he fight against God's will and will he need more convincing? And if you sneak peek ahead, the first verse of the next chapter is, and then there was more famine in the land. So apparently there's a season of time where Jacob is not going to, he's good, they're going to abandon a son in a jail and Jacob's not going to do it. So God has to continue to bring this trial into their life. They're going to eat up all their food and they're going to be out of food again. And then they're going to think, well, you know, we could go back and try to fetch our brother. Um, but essentially the brothers have abandoned two of their siblings now, and it's not a good situation. But God's working through all this. And again, I thought, man, we could, the story really easily goes into the next chapter. Um, but I didn't want to try to go for two chapters tonight because I thought that was plenty and we have a lot and we have China stuff to do. Um, so let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is tough to see people of God doubting you. It's tough when we read through this to understand that we can be as blind as Jacob and as blind as these brothers. That when we have troubles, when we're hungry, when there's famine, Lord, in our life, there is only one place we can turn. And we have to make the journey to Jesus. And we have to trust that Jesus is there to provide for us. And Lord, even when we're provided for, even when you've filled our guts and you've filled our spiritual souls, we can still be blind to the fact that you have a plan for our life. Um, Lord, that is super convicting and it's really hard to accept. It's hard to let my heart um, hear that word. Um, and this passage is one that I've always read past. Um, perhaps, Lord, because that kind of trial is tough a tough one to accept, that you want to mold us and you want to shape us and that your blessings are um, abundant and that we sometimes miss those blessings, Lord, because we're so concerned with ourselves the things around us. We're worried about what other people think, um, Lord, that we're not ready to just accept in joy the love and the grace that you have for our lives. Lord, if we come home and our grains are full of food and, and you've left our money in our sacks, Lord, and we, 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 have, we have food and we have provision, Lord, we should be abundantly joyful at that. We should be thrilled that we have food on our table, Lord, and we have a, a roof over our heads. Um, that you have provided for us, Lord. And we want to turn back to you in praise. And we want to ask, what would you have us do now? What's your will for our life? Show us those paths, Lord. Make it clear uh, as we have job searches and school to finish. And um, uh, Lord, we just pray that you bless our every step, Lord. And thank you for your word. Thank you for these images of knowing how you operate because you've shown us in your word. And we can get to know you better by seeing how you interact with your people in the Old Testament and how you may interact with us the same way because you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, that these tests are to help mold and shape us. These are 
interventions in our life sometimes when we're going the wrong direction and when we're starting to stray from the people of God. Help us to draw near and, and reunite with the people of God. Um, so Lord, I just pray that these words sink into our hearts this week. They affect our choices and our actions. Lord, help our hearts to just be joyful to know that you are with us, you protect us, and you guard us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.